Please welcome to the stage, Todd Conklin. Sorry, that's what that was. So your watch tells you you have a text? It does. It's amazing. It actually doesn't really tell me anything. It actually makes a little beep, not really beep, but bell sound. And then and then I know, hey, wow, there's something going on. But it doesn't come on on the face of your watch? Uh, it does, but only like when I twist my arm in a certain way. <laughs> You can't see this in the podcast. This is, but I'm twisting my arm to demonstrate. Which I think, if um, how can I say this? If you did this alone on a plane, they might kick you off. Oh, Ron, you are so interesting. Hi, everybody. It's Todd Conk on the Pre-Accident Podcast. Glad you're here. It is awfully good to talk to you again today. And as you can tell already by the uh, introduction to this, if you didn't recognize the voice, that's the ever effervescent Ron Gant and I sitting around chatting. And Ron's a part of uh, today's podcast, so you're going to get to hear a, a, a much longer, not too long, I'm not saying it's too long, but a much longer conversation with Ron and I as we roll through the podcastian podcastiness as fall greatly approaches us, it, uh, it's, um, it happened. The seasons just zoomed by. I know it's boring talking about them, but um, it's, the weather's uh, it's, it's just an important part of how I hang out. It's, it's what happens. It's, uh, it's the essence of New Mexico, which you're all invited to visit if you want to. It's, uh, it's wide open. We're welcoming you. Balloon Fiesta this year was great fun. Um, so they had a great time. 1,200 balloons at the mass ascension. That is a lot of hot air. Uh, you know, as as is the podcast. <laughs> oh, thanks. I'm here all day. So now things are good. Um, fall's really a great time, and I'm having fun. And getting ready to, to do all sorts of exciting stuff. Um, Bob and I and Andrea are going to China to do a workshop. That should be fun. And, um, and roll out... Um, Workplace fatality. They're, they're, uh, it's printed in Chinese, so that book is out there in Chinese right now um, in the world for people to read. A billion people plus, maybe. I'm not sure they'll all read it. Don't get me wrong. Probably uh, half of them will. So that's what is that? That's 500 million, 800 million, something like that. That'd be half the Chinese population. They'll be on it. They'll be reading it like crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, just a matter of time, you guys. We're gonna take over the world. What else? I'm uh, I'm reeling from a comment on that stupid LinkedIn thing, where uh, um, I, I don't really understand what we do LinkedIn for. Really, it's it's uh, it seems like a place where people troll other people to say how stupid they are. And um, and there's a comment where a guy, <laughs> the uh, you might have seen it. I don't know. It's it's a lady who's driving a train and she's texting and she hits the back of the train in front of her. And, uh, you know, it's an accident. It's a pretty significant accident. It's, it's a train. So, you know, and, uh, and, and there's two ways to look at that. You can say that she's a bad train driver, which is true. I mean, you know, probably, or that the system itself is so fragile that when a distracted driver gets that close to the train in front of them, there's no other secondary systems to sort of snap her out of her complacency or stop the train or, you know, there's the, the two ways we look at stuff. We've had this conversation 9 million times. So they showed the video and a guy wrote a really nice comment about how, you know, air's normal and blaming this train operator is emotionally satisfying. 
and will immediately fix this problem but won't provide long-term solution. And some guy writes back and calls the guy a liberal douchebag, um, which you know if the conversation starts with that, that it's going to be interesting. He's a construction safety manager in Virginia. Um, clearly, this is uh, taking this wild turn. That was the start of the comment. And then from there on, he just, uh, he, he proceeded to just take this poor guy down. And it wasn't me. Or, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even a part of this, right? I'm just reading it. But it's so frustrating to me that it went to such a level so quickly. And, her, and, and the desire the guy had to, to fully, fully not only blame the person who was operating the train and texting, but to blame the person who made the LinkedIn post as if that was really a part of this, this giant conspiracy to actually remove responsibility from workers. And, I, you know, I don't even know how to have this conversation anymore, especially when it starts with the phrase, you're a liberal douchebag. I don't know where we're going to go. I mean, it's, I, I would grant you everything is up from there. Uh, there's, there's hardly much down left. But, but holy crap, when people push that hard to, um, to ensure, in fact, accountability is held at the worker level, They've already lost the battle. The ba- that battle's done. I mean, they'll never punish their little construction company in Virginia into good behavior. They will hide every single piece of information that that guy doesn't want to see away from that guy every time it'll happen. And I don't know. That's just it's on my mind, and it happens all the time. This it's it's crazy. I you know I just want to say what we can get along. I mean, I promise you, the world is. Life is too short, and the world's too amazing to spend each other spend time calling each other liberal douchebags. But it's just the wrong approach. That's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. So there. So that's it. So okay. So I got that done. Cleanse the palate there. Ooh, shot a little uh, emotional bile ooh, into the conversation, and now we can talk about Ron because this this podcast is fun. So this podcast is a is a pretty interesting discussion on what it takes if you decide to go ahead and get a graduate degree in safety. And Ron's going to talk about sort of his, his, his doctorate journey and what he's researching. That's what I was interested in. That's what, that's what started the whole conversation. But you're going to really get a feel for what a journey this is. And I actually think it's, it's, it's fun. And it's a great conversation. I mean, the conversation is fun. I think the journey's fun, too. It's a lot of work, and there's lots going on. But uh, it's, it's worth you sitting and just enjoying just be kind of a fly on the wall and enjoy the conversation that Ron and I are having because uh, it's pretty fun. Anytime you can spend time with Ron Gant, it's positive. I mean, he's he's hilarious, and hilarious is a good thing to be, if you ask me. He is a very, very interesting guy, and he has lots of interesting things to say, and that's what we're about to enjoy. So until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the musings of graduate student Ron Gant as he talks about his program and what he's doing, and the research he's he's thinking about. It, it's interesting. You'll enjoy it. So, Ron Gant, what are you up to now? Give us – just update us where you are sort of on your journey. Uh, so where am I on my journey? Uh, I'm Man, I'm just trying to figure everything out still. Uh, right now I'm really, really busy trying to finish school. That's one thing I'm very busy doing. Um, and trying to figure out this thing we call drift. Um, beyond that, 
I'm also trying to figure out how do we operationalize this thing that we call the new view in other ways. So talk, talk to me about, and let's talk about both those things because they're great, but talk to me about grad school. So what's the benefit of grad school? Are you glad you chose to do it? I mean, maybe is this the wrong time to ask? No, no, it's I, never a good time to ask that question, I know. I mean, it is after it's over. It's a great time to ask the question after it's over. But your journey around grad school and the safety idea, how's that been? Uh, so... It's it's actually been good, um, and it certainly it's it's painful. You know, like I explained, you know, getting a PhD is like a boot camp for nerds. Um, but the I, to me, the the valuable part about it is you get to push yourself farther, and and if you're doing it right, get to push the overall knowledge base farther, um, which you know the body of knowledge within the industry and within academia. So. Um, it's, it's really forcing me to look at what we are talking about within HOP and whatever in new ways. Yeah, the whole idea of, of implications for further research is a really important part of, of writing the book report, the dissertation part of it. Um, how's the research going and what are you looking at and, and what are you finding and how much, uh, how much – help you getting from other people i mean what's going on there uh so it's it's going really well um if you asked me about nine months ago i'd say it was it was hell on earth uh but now i i took some time away and, and cleared my head a little bit and i'm coming back to it and i feel actually much more inspired with it um and so i'm focusing on organizational drift i want to understand more about what it is uh, because it's a term we throw around a lot, and I don't know that we have a clear idea of what we mean when we say it. And then, ultimately, if we can, you know, figure out what it is, find ways to deal with it in some way, shape, or form. Who coined the phrase organizational drift? Well, that's uh, that's actually a, a tough one to answer because the term sort of just started appearing in the literature. Uh, if you look at, like, sociology literature even in it there's like early references to the, literally that term organizational drift in like the early 90s the first time it really appeared in the safety literature is probably with scott snook's practical drift and then into like david wood's drift into failure he talked about that and then subsequently sydney um i mean you can see like the hints of it earlier than that but nobody really called it drift in the safety world and stuff. So what are you what are you looking at? How do you research that? I mean, the lit review I think would be super interesting because you can step out of the field. But what are you looking at exactly? So the one of the things I want to do is uh, there's a quote from Sidney Decker in the first resilience engineering book uh, where he he says something to the effect of maybe instead of accident models we need a model of normal work. And so thinking of drift as a product of normal work, as adaptation within normal work, um, I decided to take a step back away from the, uh, you know, the idea that you know, drift is failure and things like that and just, okay, how can we model normal work and how work changes over time and how can we understand that? And so I'm creating a model of what I believe will basically describe how work changes and what are the factors that drive that change. What's that model look like? Three boxes. Uh, <laughs> it looks like your laundry over there. Uh, the ice machine's going crazy on us. I don't know what's going on, but it's going crazy. Um, no, so so it, it, the, 
basically there's three elements to it um, that iterate over time. So the first element is context, right? And I'm coming at this from actually a sociological lens uh, more than anything. Uh, and so by context, I'm kind of using theories from Giddens. I don't know if you've heard of structuration theory. Um, but uh, basically rules, resources, and I'm using the kind of catch-all term culture, which I'm not crazy about, but I'm just using it for now. I might come up with something different to basically describe the sorts of social structures that influence people's you know, kind of actions in a given environment. Those things interact to create work is done, right? Work is done then leads to sense-making, and that's, you know, even though I'm kind of saying that in like a linear sense, it's obviously not linear. There's sense-making that's happening as work is happening, but it basically, by the time people finish the job, they have to take a step back and, and say, okay, what happened? You know, they don't really sit and necessarily say this consciously, but there's a, an understanding that, you know, what we did was good or what we did was bad, and we should do that again in the future. That, those three elements then, and particularly the sense-making piece, then create a new set of context for the next iteration. Where are you going for the sense-making literature? What are you, is that coming out of sociology as well? Uh, a little bit, but actually I'm probably going to lean a lot on like Carl Weick, uh sense-making and organizations um, to kind of help me understand that piece of it. Um, but I think there's actually some interesting things that you can draw on even within sociology, like particularly like social networks. You know, it's like one of the hypotheses that I think I'm playing with is to understand um, how different types of social networks can influence drift because drift has to be a social thing. If one person deviates from an action one time, it's not drift. For it to become, you know, become ingrained within the system, that means a group of people have to in some way agree, and I'm going to put agree in air quotes because it doesn't necessarily have to be like a formal, hey, let's talk about this and come to an understanding, but there has to be some sort of routine that is developed that, okay, yeah, this is how we do it this time and then subsequently maybe uh, change it in the future. Um, and so I think there might be ways to uh, track how that uh, social network how, how the information diffuses through the social network. So you can even look at like stuff like diffusion of innovation um, to see how that sense-making piece moves throughout the system. God, that's brilliant. You could use you could use Rogers' diffusion curve. Oh, that would be really interesting, actually, because you would really probably have early adopters, and you'd clearly have laggards. I mean, you'd clearly have people that would drag their feet. The interesting part of the diffusion curve for this, at least on first blush is the whole middle of it that just kind of merrily moves along. Um, that's really interesting. Wow. Yeah, I think so. I think it, it, when, I'm really excited about it because I think it leads to a lot of interesting hypotheses. Um, so first, from academic perspective, it's interesting. But from a practical perspective, I think if we can start to identify how this information and this sense-making moves through the social structure, we may be able to find new ways to identify this in real time. Not in real time per se, but in a more actionable sense, right? It's not just something we identify after an accident happens, but we can actually give people things to look for. Hey, if you see these sor sorts of social structures or networks or these sorts of conditions in the context, you're more likely to have drift, not drift. Not in that Drift is a bad thing per se. I don't want to give that impression, but 
it, I think it can lead to some of those uh, those things. But it's an organizational phenomenon, or it's co-created mm-hmm. in the process of doing work, probably. Fair enough? I mean, is Absolutely. that fair enough? So what are you looking at? So so you're doing the lit review. That's a pretty interesting literature review, for those of you that don't know what lit review means. Um, then then what's the RQ, what's your research question going to look like? What are, you, what, are you, what are you kicking around in your head? Well, so the, the research question is first, is, is this model actually predictive of change, right? So does the model that I'm developing actually explain uh, kind of change within a, a set of routines? Um, there's actually some interesting research from uh, some organizational theorists on routines where they describe two different aspects of routines. One is the performative aspect or what we would call work is done. The other one's called the ostensive aspect. And uh, that's basically how they how people talk about and think about the routine. And, um, and I think that's kind of where the sense-making piece comes in. And I think that... The thing that really I'm, I, I'm, I'm interested in is I think it, as drift shifts, we like to think of it as a shift in work is done. I actually think of drift more as a shift as work, in work is imagined, and that's how we actually identify it. Now, the interesting thing about that, and the, the part that is sometimes hard for people, is we, we think of it as work is imagined, work is done. I think I would rather talk about it in terms of like Steve Chirac's uh, different varieties of work where he has work is prescribed, work is imagined work is done and work is disclosed and so work is prescribed doesn't change the black line doesn't really change but when drift happens we create a new way that the that work crew is thinking about the work and i think my research question is is that really happening does the work crew actually have a different conception a different model of how that work's being done that totally based upon context based upon what's happening when the work's being done it seems like that would be yeah that's gonna be interesting because it seems like that would be relatively normal phenomena you you could see that probably in everything so that's really interesting and i think if you add the other two dimensions to that so especially work just talked about or work work as exposed or whatever sexy word you want to use there (laughs) i mean because i do think people so i the question i would have and it'd be interesting to see in your research i think people do more than they know they do and they perform more than they think they performed so, and how much of that is sort of an automatic reaction to stimuli that you don't even realize you did that, but you did it, could be really interesting to discover at some point. Is, um, is this interesting? So is your committee interested in what you're looking at? I mean, have you picked your committee yet? Yeah, I, I have a committee, and uh, they're overall interested. I mean, it helps that Ivan Popoliti is on my committee, so he's interested. Um, and then I've got a few others uh, on the committee who are relatively interested. I'm not sure that all of my committee is as interested. I'm in an engineering program, and they're not, in general, as comfortable with the idea that I'm really relying on sociology for this. But uh, that's the way that cookie crumbles. Well, yeah, I don't think you want your committee to be too interested. That seems like that would be really negative. You, you want to remember that you're the expert. No one in the world knows more about this topic than you do. And you kind of have to manage your committee uh, nicely and politely. Um, bring good refreshments. That's always a key, right? But you want to sort of tell them this is what you need to think and this is how you need to think about it. And just know that no one will know more about this than you do. I mean, that's that's a pretty valuable part of it. So what's the timeline look like when you be done? Uh, well, assuming everything goes according to plan, end of next year, most likely. The only good book report is a done book report. You know that, right? It's yeah. not your life's greatest work. 
Um, it just needs to be finished. That's really a key thing because uh, it's hard to finish it. How, do you have any any good stalling strategies that you don't know about? Like I learned to play dobro instead of writing my dissertation because it was more fun to learn how to play dobro <laughs> than it was to write my dissertation. Uh, well, I mean, uh, so I, I don't play dobro, but uh, no, I mean, my stalling strategies are, I don't know, I get distracted reading other stuff or uh, I've got stupid like games I play on my phone sometimes that distract me. I also have a new puppy and she's pretty damn distracting too. So. But that's a good kind of distraction. So that's a part of it. What about work-wise? What are you seeing in the community? What should we be paying attention to? You're kind of an early adopter. You're a leader in the field. You're the guy. You're the man. What are you looking at? What do you care about now? Uh, so I, one of the things that's really, really uh, interesting and important to me, um, and I kind of happened upon this in my research on drift, is the idea that um, – so I, I'm interested in the idea of learning in general. Um, one of the things I really want to focus in on is how do we embed this learning that we're getting from things like learning teams and whatnot into the organization so that we can actually take advantage of it. There's a term I came across in the innovation literature called absorptive capacity, and it's the ability for an organization to identify and take advantage of information. Now, in the innovation literature, they mean it in terms of um, take advantage of external information, right? So, you know, product information, consumer information. But I think we can actually mold it and take it and look at it internally and use some of the things that they've found in that literature that actually increase the ability for an organization to learn and use it to not just learn externally but learn from itself. Do some organizations have more absorptive capacity than other organizations? Yeah, so there's there's some, some interesting research on what are the things that increase an organization's absorptive capacity. Now, some of that is... It, you know, one of the things they've done is they've separated absorptive capacity into two types. They call it potential and realized. Potential is we gra- we gather the information. So imagine you just did a learning team, right? So we've got all this inter- interesting information about the organization or about a particular task or you know whatever. Um, but then we got to actually do something with it, and so realized absorptive capacity. And so they identify things like in the potential uh, absorptive capacity side. You know, organizations that have uh, psychological safety, organizations that have a leadership structure that encourages people to bring up concerns and issues, um, you know, organizations that allow more autonomy, those have a better opportunity to identify stuff. On the realized side, organizations that have the ability to take that learning and put it into an existing sort of structure to create change and take advantage of it. You know, it's, it's, I don't mean bureaucracy per se, but some sort of actual process to actually do something with it, whether it's the workers going out and fixing it or, you know, for bigger changes, moving it into the organization's processes, something like that has to happen, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, I actually think this is super interesting because um, I would guess organizations have different levels of, of I can't even say it, absorptive capacity. But I would think actually realizing that, sort of closing the deal on that, is probably the biggest challenge. I, I mean, I don't know. I'd be really curious if they could assess how much capacity an organization has to take in new information. I mean, I don't know if they're – if organizations are like people, it, would, it seems like on the surface that it would be limitless. 
But in reality, I imagine it's quite limited by lots of things, agendas and what they want to hear and how much they can handle truth. And so all these biases would be really strong in that as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, to your point, you know, pre-existing mental models. And, you know, even when you look at the organizational learning literature, something that we don't talk a lot about it is organizational forgetting. That that's an important part of learning, right? Because you have to get rid of old models that aren't serving you anymore, old beliefs, old ways of doing things. And if so, the, if there's no process to uh, to allow that to happen, then, yeah, you're not going to be able to learn. Those biases will take over. Well, I think organizations believe solutions are permanent, right? Mm-hmm. And they they think once we solve this problem, we'll never have to solve it again. But in reality, organizations are constantly reinventing themselves. They're constantly changing. The context alone is changing. The market's changing. Technology, for God's sakes, is changing. And so probably lots of processes, systems, practices, biases, traditions have had to go away. And how you get an organization to purposely forget something, that would be pretty interesting. I don't know. That's that's sounds like you could have a second PhD. <laughs> It'd be Dr. Dr. Ron. Dr. 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 Who are you going to make call you doctor? Um, you know, I'm going to save that one for just that special jerk that I find, you know, who, I don't know, cuts me off, uh, on the freeway or something like that. Or, you know, and, I, and then I happen to see him at the coffee shop later or something like that. But other than that, he'll have to call you doctor. Yeah. Where are you going to hang your diploma? That's the big question. You know, right. You've never been to my house, but my diploma hangs in my guest bathroom. <laughs> well, I'm going to hang my diploma in your guest bathroom. That's really where it hangs, in my guest bathroom. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I have no idea. Like, step one is to actually finish the damn thing, and then and then I'll, you know, I figure then I can write a new dissertation on where to hang it. You're right. I am getting the cart a little bit ahead of the horse. You do have to finish it. But when you're finished, let me highly recommend your guest bathroom because it's as good a place as any. Your office seems snooty and kind of pretentious. Yeah. But the guest bathroom, I mean, that's really – that's giving it to where the people live. That's, that's the best place to put it for sure, man. I mean, where, I mean, where else would you put it for crying out loud? Um, kitchen seems wrong. Living room's just weird. Yeah, no. I don't know. Uh, no. I don't know. Maybe maybe hanging above, like, the, you know, the – the bed in the guest bedroom. There you go. A place of honor. Yeah. A, the, guest, the crappy mattress that used to be yours. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I think that's a good place for it. Final words to anybody? What, what are you thinking? Uh, well, no. I mean, if anybody uh, is interested in, in uh, being uh, involved in the research at all, you know, let me know. Reach out. I could always use an organization to partner with. So you're, you're really looking at practicing this in real – so using these models – on, on a real organization. Yeah, oh, actually, let's say that again. That, that's really good. What are you looking for? What characteristics? So, I mean, in general, uh, you know, anything. But the ideal is um, in thinking about, you know, the time frame I want to complete it in. I think an ideal would be an organization that's, you know, whether it's a construction company, large general contractor, or, you know, an uh, oil and gas facility that's going through a big maintenance shutdown, turnaround, something like that, um, that is starting – you know, probably towards the beginning of next year, uh, because something like that will have a high level of complexity and risk, and will have a lot of work happening in a short period of time. So there's a lot of data points. There we go, you guys. That's our challenge. Thanks, Ron. Anything uh, 
close out like pithy final thing like don't ever eat anything bigger than your head or something like that don't squat with spurs on and there you have it that is the conversation between ron and i and if you're interested in getting some uh advice and help from ron along the way perhaps you'd be the right place to volunteer for ron to do his work his uh applied use of his research it could work you guys i mean it's not a bad idea and uh, actually, it's a great idea, if you have to ask me. And it'd be a great way to uh, to kind of pump in some new uh, analysis. I would actually would kind of call it kind of a new way to see the world, a new vantage point, a new perspective. That's the word I'm looking for, a new perspective into your system. And that may be valuable bar none. So, you know, if you're interested, Ron's contactable, uh, he says. You can contact him. He's contactable. And that'd work well, too. And our bumper music, the music between the interview, I want to thank my friend Annabelle Yeston. That's her new song that she just wrote. And I uh, got a bootlegged copy of it, and I thought I'd put it in, uh, well, I thought I'd put it in the uh, podcast. And then for a treat, I'll give you a full version at the end of the podcast. But I think that's about what we got to talk about today. I mean, I think we're pretty much done, don't you? You feel like we did a good day? Was this good? Are you almost at work? You three walking the dogs? You got it all done? Good. I hope so. Learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be set. I can't even say it. I can't even say it. I, I screwed up my own thing. Be safe.
That's Annabelle Yeston and her song Little Sister, available on Annabelle Records.